In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating, and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana, and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to the Sahapod Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great guest for you today. Before I introduce him, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, comment, and share this video. My guest today is Francois Batalingaya, who is the United Nations Resident Coordinator in Comoros. As a frontline humanitarian and development worker, he has participated in the response to most of the major humanitarian crises of the past 28 years. He started off in his native Rwanda as a public health volunteer in charge of child immunization with the Belgian section of Doctors Without Borders, MSF, in the early 1990s. He rose to senior level positions at national, regional, and global levels including current director and global emergency director of a major international NGO, before joining the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. He built extensive experience not only in leadership, in ambiguous and uh, complex contexts, but also in the engagement and influence of peer agency leaders, as well as state or non-state actors. His work has been singled out because of its results orientation and its demonstrated capacity to build consensus on the importance of those results. He's finalizing his PhD in public health at Walden University, has a postgraduate diploma in social sciences research, a master's in public health, and an international diploma in humanitarian assistance. Welcome Francois and thank you for agreeing to speak with me today. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. No, thank you. And as I was preparing to speak with you, I also looked at your bio and thank you for sharing it with me. And I know one of the things that I read about was that your own work in, in hum the humanitarian sector is deeply rooted in your childhood experiences and Christian upbringing. Could you tell me about that? Well, um, as I was growing up as, um, as a young child, uh, I was unfortunate to lose my mother at an early age. Um, I was barely three years old. And then it did not take long before my father passed away. Um, I was about to turn nine years at the time. Now, that experience of growing as an orphan was the foundation for me to build this desire to assist others. And again, um, I turned to my Christian Ruth, roots to, to be able to, to cope uh, within, within this world, to grow up, to go to school, and eventually be who I am today. Uh, I think, I think uh, and also I had an opportunity to work for a Christian organization later in my career which helped me also grow in my spiritual relationship uh, and my, my, my spiritual belief. So, so, so that's why I'm saying um, that, that, that early, early start, my early, early upbringing up, up, made me who I am today as a humanitarian. Yeah. Right. And... I think you also mentioned you had wanted to be a priest. That's correct. That's correct. The reason why I wanted to be a priest is because um, back home, uh, back in Rwanda, there was uh, a priest who was, um, who was not only the leader of the Catholic Church, the Catholic parish, but also he is head of the Caritas. And that Caritas, uh, that charity, he was helping the orphans and the, the vulnerable children and women. So, and because of that, I wanted to be like him. He was my role model. He was a priest, head of the Catholic parish, head of the Caritas, a local humanitarian organization, assisting those who are vulnerable. My role model, I wanted to be like him. 
that's the reason why I want to be a priest. Right. And um, I also know that you mentioned education has been very important for you. And I also do want to say education has been extremely important for, for my own life. I think I tend to feel that if my father hadn't sent me to school, uh, I would not be where I am. But the reason I picked up on this specifically is that I know in a lot of the work we do, a lot of children uh, don't have access to education. And maybe you could just speak to me a little bit about that. Correct. I mean, you know, when I when I think back, I reflect uh, as my early childhood. I remember, um, I can't remember a single one with whom I started school um, back actually 50 years ago, uh, who was able to go to a secondary level and even less to a higher degree to, uh, to the university, which was unfortunate. Uh, without education, I don't think there isn't there's much we can do on uh, today. So it's important that one goes to school. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to school. Uh, obviously, as a, as an orphan, I didn't have any money. But I was uh, fortunate enough to have uh, the extended family uh, and the government to pay for my scholarships and, and be able to, to continue with my education. Education is very important. And that's why very pers personally, as an individual today, I support uh, both um, education and particularly those who I need uh, right. to attend school. Right. And you've worked many countries, actually, uh, with several non-profit organizations. And what do you see as the biggest key humanitarian challenge today? You know, for me, I will tell you that the, the biggest humanitarian challenge, it's not the refugees, it's the internally displaced people. You know, they right. tend to be forgotten. They tend to be forgotten. Uh, it's not, you know, the rapid onset emergencies, uh, they, they catch the scene in the moment and we are able to respond quickly. But there are those slow disasters those slow, rapid onset disasters, which displace millions of people. There are those localized emergencies, which displace million, uh, millions of people inside their own countries, and they are completely forgotten. These are individuals who do not cross borders. I think that's for me personally, right. that's the biggest challenge today. Right. And um, I mean, when you look at internally displaced persons, and you're right, um, I don't have the numbers in my head, but I believe most of them are because of conflict, if I'm right. Um, and of course, conflict, you know, creates a lot of, 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 of you know, a lot of destruction of, of people's lives. What, how can conflict be stopped? You know, how can we stop these wars? Well, there, there, are, there are several reasons to conflict, several reasons why we have conflicts. Uh, there is, of course, there is a bad governance. It's also one thing that comes up, uh, the bad governance. And, of course, also there the is issue the fighting for resources, fighting for resources uh, in some of the areas. If you look at the Sahel region of West Africa, there's that fight for resources. It's, 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 it's in the fighting for water, the fighting for land. And of course, there is the governance issues, which is at a macro level. Uh, I think those are some of the reasons why right. we need to look at. And then let's not forget the issue of climate change. Climate change, the desertification of some part of Africa is really increasing the level of displacement. Uh, let's not forget that. Right. The house, so what are the solutions? How do we fix this? How do we stop these wars? You know, you know, number one, yes, conflict, it's, it's easy to say, okay, I have good leadership, uh, tackling the governance issues, it's important, uh, being able to negotiate for local solutions, but we need to tackle the climate issues, change issues. Global warming, it, it's something we need mm -hmm. to be serious with it. Mm -hmm. The Secretary General of the, of the UN keeps talking about this. 
I think it should be a priority for every single one of us as an individual. Uh, at the individual level, at the community level, at the country level, we all have to do something to do our part in this. Yeah. yeah. What is it we can do, though? What we cannot do, what we can, we can, we can do. You know, a simple thing. Um, one say it's if each one of us could plant plant a tree. Right. Plant a tree. Just just every single one of that in this planet. You plant a tree. Right. You take care of that tree during your lifetime. If you 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 plant two three. I think we'll be able to really stop this global warming. Right. So, right. yeah, correct. Right. Uh, and thank you for that, uh, Francois. Now, and I'm going to slowly uh, make our way to speaking about um, this short story we are going to discuss later on. Uh, but before I do that, what have you enjoyed the most in your career so far? You know, what I've enjoyed the most is really... Having this opportunity to assist those who are in need. Yeah. For instance, um, the reason why I kept doing this for this long period of time, nearly 30 years, is because when I started and I was running feeding centers, feeding the children who are malnourished, right, because of my academic background. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time, I was in Liberia. It was back in, um, I think it was early 1996. I was in Liberia. And we traveled in this place called Putu, in Putu land. That's in the southeast Liberia. Mm -hmm. Very isolated. It was in the middle of the war. In the middle of the war. We arrived in this region, which was completely cut off for years for years, cut off from the rest of the world. And then we arrived in a village, and that village, um, we screened children. We were looking for those who were malnourished mm -hmm. to be able to, to take them to the feeding center. And there's one young girl who was basically dying. The family had given up hope. They were waiting for that person to die. We said, no, let's pick up the, 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 the girl, we take him to the clinic, and we, we try to feed her and, and see whether she could recover, recover. We took her to the clinic, and then within two weeks, she started walking. Mm -hmm. Started walking. I left. I left because I had a training in Monrovia, the capital city, and I was away for three weeks. Mm -hmm. When I came back, I went to the clinic as I was walking around, this young girl came hugging me. I didn't know who she was because I had forgotten. She was no longer the same person we had picked up a month earlier, uh, two months earlier. And then she looked at me because I was puzzled. She said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, no, I don't remember you. Have we ever met before? She said, yes. And then some of my colleagues said, yes, this is a girl we, we brought from Putu. You know, that's the day I felt Joy, joy because this young girl was that was about to die. The family had given up on her. Here she was, walking, full of energy, mm. of hope, and she had recovered. That's what kept me going today. When I remember that story and many others, from not only from Liberia, but also from Somalia, from Mozambique, from Afghanistan. When I remember such people, then that's when I say, this is what I need to do. This is my work. This is what I can do while I'm here on this planet. Wow, that's a very, very powerful story. Actually, I honestly felt a little bit teary as you are sharing that. And I know at Ocha, we do say life saves life. Uh, coordination saves lives. You know, we say a lot humanitarian aid saves lives. And I think to me, listening to this story does really illustrate uh, that point or brings it home for me. Um, tell me, Francois, what have been one of your biggest professional challenge? To be honest with you, uh, the, the biggest professional challenge I've been having is just uh, 
working with non-state actors who do not respect any laws, any human beings, and they just waste people, if I can use that, that expression. And that was my challenge. Uh, my challenge is that, I mean, wh whether you are in Somalia and you are dealing with non-armed groups, right? Uh, you are in Liberia, you remember the, that time of the war, uh, the early 90s, all the way to early 2000s, uh, during that, people were dying in big numbers. And you basically have to, as a humanitarian, you have to speak with those in authority, those who are holding the guns, to have access to those areas. You know, these are criminals right. who should be facing justice, but still you have to talk to them. That has been my biggest challenge today, to be honest with you. And again, um, as head of uh, OCHA in the Central African Republic, again, I had to deal with such people at such a senior level. I mean, for months and months, uh, going to the bush for weeks, just looking for them to be able to negotiate access. So, so that's has been really my challenge. Right. And, uh, and, and of course, you know, again, just for those who are listening, when we have conflict, conflict always has two parties. Often you have, you know, government and non-state armed actors. And this is what uh, Francois is, is, is speaking about. But when I was reading and preparing to speak with you, one of the other things you mentioned was, you know, when you're there uh, working as a humanitarian worker, responding to humanitarian needs, sometimes it's difficult or not being allowed to speak about human rights or crimes against uh, humanity and these kinds of other human rights violations. Why is that? Why is that? It's very simple. It's very simple if, if, if you bring it up, either you are targeted as an individual or you are prevented from having access to those who are in need of your services. Right. And that's why you have to balance. You have to balance. Say, what do I do? <laughs> and by the way, it's not only in conflict settings alone where we face such challenges. Even in other, in other places, stable countries, we face such challenges. We, we have to trade. It's a trade-off. Do I speak up against human rights violation or I just take it at a different level? Just do quiet advocacy so that I can continue to have access to those who are in need of my services, need of the organization. So, so that's a trade-off. That's a trade-off. You know, personally, I struggled. I struggled throughout my career. Yeah. Before joining the United Nations, I, I recorded some of these uh, human rights violations. But what, what I was always told in the organization was, your priority, your responsibility is to respond, to respond to the needs of those who are the most vulnerable. Right. It's not to record human rights violations. So, so that's, that's, that's where we are. That's where we are. And then for, unfortunately, there are so many humanitarian, uh, humanitarian people at the front line who are going through the same thing I went through as a frontline humanitarian worker. Yes. Now, absolutely. And of course, I know that we also have human rights organizations um, whose job is to document human rights violations and look at other systems to bring those on board. But certainly, it is a dilemma that I imagine every humanitarian worker at some point is faced with. Yes, it is. It is. Every single one of us who face such, such challenges. But unfortunately, the human rights organization, what I would say, number one, they are not present mm -hmm. where we need them to be present. Right. That's number one. They don't have that access as, as most of us do. Right. That, that's one thing. And also, whenever a human rights organization sends someone in a country, you know, whether it's a non-state or even the state, what I've seen is that first they say no. Right. <laughs> you have to insist or, or to use other diplomatic channels be, before you get in. And even there are those who have been able to get to, to access the country, to access the, the areas, 
disguising as something else, which is not actually good. But, I mean, we have to get those stories out uh, because there are those who are in need of, of us out there. Yeah. And coming back to stories, um, so as we, we, we spoke, of course, you know, the, 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 the podcast really is um, anchored around storytelling and in particular fiction. Um, but of course, I also take it, use that as an opportunity to speak to people like you, a humanitarian practitioner, to hear your thoughts uh, about, you know, these humanitarian challenges, your perspective and your own journey into this uh, sector, which is all, which I found very, very inspiring. Um, but really, it's also really asking the question. To me, it's really given the scale of humanitarian crisis continues to increase. They are not reducing. The drivers continue to increase. You know, we have protracted conflict situations that, you know, have remained for years. I guess to me, it's really trying to say, is there other, are there other tools that we can use to advocate, to teach and to raise awareness, but also hopefully to motivate action. And this is why I'm speaking to people like you about stories and fiction stories. So my first question really is, do you think stories, do you think fiction has a role in raising awareness? about, you know, conflicts, war, climate change, natural disasters? Yes. You know, stories are important to raise awareness. Are important to raise awareness because, you see, when you, you see um, a crisis, uh, let's say it could be um, a rapid onset emergency, mm -hmm. it could be a slow onset emergency, People don't understand that that crisis is going to be there for years. When people move from their home, today we are seeing images on television of people leaving Ukraine. Okay, uh, it's it's a major humanitarian emergency we are seeing today, but uh, there are many others. That the minimum the minimum we take for that place to to stabilize would be eight years. Right. But people don't understand that, that it takes that long after the end of the crisis for a place to stabilize. And, and when, when they are assisting, when they are, they are looking at the short term, and then we are facing the donor fatigue. Obviously, when you, you give, you can give up to a certain, uh, up to a certain yeah. period of time, up to a certain amount. And, and we need to figure out how do we make sure that there is not that donor fatigue and we assist as long as it takes so that we can even build the resilience of those who are right. affected. Right. And, and then even, and, and then, and then of course what we are seeing is that the quality of life is going down. It's going down because it's crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis, right? If you look at the areas like South Sudan, areas like the Somalia, the Ethiopia, uh, the, 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 the Central African Republic, people are facing crisis after crisis after crisis. Let me give you a story of my, my, my early career. You know, I was very proud. I, I mean, again, I, I give the example mm -hmm. of Liberia because I spent some time in Liberia, a lot of time in Liberia. Uh, I spent some time rehabilitating health infrastructures, training nurses. I mean, we, we, with my organization, at the time I was working for World Vision International, we really invested heavily into that, human resources, infrastructure, equipping the clinics. And that was back 1997, 1998, and 2000. And everything was really fine. And then all of a sudden, the war broke out and everything was destroyed again. We lost all the human capacity and so forth. Because what we have seen in Liberia was the harvesting of humanitarian aid. So we would stockpile, rehabilitate, train, and, and so forth. And then the war broke out, breaks out. And then we, 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 it's a cycle with a cycle, a cycle. And then, of course, the, the, the known... Um, non-state armed groups, they will yeah. profit from that and the harvest 
whatever we're doing. So we have been seeing it. It's not in Liberia today. We are seeing it in Central right. African Republic. The same thing. The same cycles. Um, I think. I think we need to sit down and ask ourselves: How do we deal with this? How do we stabilize the place, right? And it, it requires really a commitment at such a senior level. I would like to see, personally, I would like to see regional institutions playing a major role. Like, for instance, if we talk about Africa, I'd like to see the African Union playing a major role, stepping up, stepping up, and taking up some of the roles that, uh, some of the functions that are led by uh, the United Nations, for instance. Um, I would like to see institutions like what we saw with ECOWAS, ECOWAS in West Africa, uh, I mean, playing a major role in stabilizing Sierra Leone, in stabilizing Liberia. Could they do the same thing uh, on the humanitarian yeah. front? So I think that's that. I would like, what I would like to see personally. Uh, so right. yeah. And, and 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 absolutely, of course. Uh, I think many of us um, do look at regional organisations, do look to our governments, our own governments, to 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 deal uh, with many of these crises and put the systems uh, in place. And a lot of regional organizations, you know, um, you know, ASEAN in Asia, of course, the African Union, ECOWAS, um, are doing uh, a lot of work as well. But coming back to stories, then, what? How are stories helping with this conversation, or how can they help with this conversation, or to influence this conversation at all? Because a story with a story, it's very mm -hmm. easy to remember. It's very easy to engage. When you hear a story, you know, it's, it's, it's the stories that kept, right. kept me going. It's the stories of people that I've been with that kept me going. We, as humanitarian workers, we need to share those stories. We need to share those stories to use the opportunities of speaking to people like you and bring up those stories to those who right. support us to be able to go there. Bring those stories to the governments. Bring those stories, because not everybody has that opportunity to go right. there, to be there. Right. Let's bring up those stories. Um, and, and those let's bring the stories of those who are really right. resilient. That those who are really resilient people and who are doing the impossible. Um, you've been seeing on CNN, that those humanitarian workers going to the front line, feeding people, feeding people right there. Let's bring up those yeah. stories and, 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 and then work together to be able to reach out more to, uh, to more, yeah. more people like that. And Francois, this brings me to a private experience by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, this is uh, one of her short stories. And Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is one of my favorite authors. She has written several novels, but also several short stories. So um, my first question for you is, what is a private experience about? You know, when I think of, her, of what she wrote, a private experience is really being in a situation whereby you, you don't know what to expect, you don't know how to behave, and you don't even know how the story is going to end. So, so you are in this situation, and you you have to basically discover something new every single minute, every single day, every single year, and that's a private experience you are going through. Something really—it's a discovery. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, Chimamanda is an incredible writer and she compressed so much. I think the story itself is over just a few hours, if I remember, uh, where these uh, two women are together, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, who are the main characters in the story? Well, basically, the main characters is, is this woman. She she was a house, a Muslim woman. And she ends up meeting with this now Igbo Christian woman. They don't know each other. They have different backgrounds. One is basically going through uh, an Ivy League type of a school, 
uh, in the university. Another one is selling in the market, right? Um, there's this one speaking well-polished English and the other one is speaking pidgin English, uh, but still they are able to communicate. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. But but the, the, the thing is that they are sharing an experience that there. They are sharing an experience of, of running away from a situation, a dangerous situation, and they find themselves together and basically going through such a moment, intimate moment, of having discussions about the families, about what they do, and so forth. That's That's what I take from this. Yeah, and what is this situation that they are running away from? It's a riot. It's a riot, a riot which came from what? Which came from uh, somebody ran ran over by a, a, a holy a holy a holy Quran, uh, and then of course mm-hmm. uh, that turned into a riot. The individual was killed, uh, and, and then um, was basically a massacre between Christian and Muslims. So it took basically a day for the the police forces, the, the security forces to intervene and calm the situation. But people died. People were deaf in the street. So, so that's that's the reality of it. Yeah. And in fact, if it's okay, I let me just read um, a short excerpt from the story that actually sparks off the riot. Um, here I go. Later, she will see the hulks of banned cars, jagged holes in place of their windows and windshields, and she will imagine the burning cars dotting the city like picnic bonfires, silent witnesses to so much. She will find out it had all started at the motor park when a man drove over a copy of the Holy Quran that had been dropped on the roadside, a man who happened to be Igbo and Christian. The men nearby, men who sat around all day playing droughts, Men who happened to be Muslim pulled him out of his pickup truck, cut his head off with one flash of a machete, and carried it to the market, asking others to join in. The infidel had desecrated the holy book. Chika will imagine the man's head, his skin ashen in death, and she'll throw up and rage until her stomach is sore. But now she asks the woman, can you still smell the smoke? And this is basically the incident that sparks or starts off this riot. Correct. Right. And um, I think they, they were, and Chika was actually visiting um, her auntie. She'd actually just gone to visit her auntie for, for, I don't know for how long, but with her sister. Correct, yes. Yeah. And what transpires between these two women? What, what, what what has transpired to me here is that they both run for their lives, right? It doesn't matter who you are. So there's this woman, one was a Christian visiting, she was not far from there, and the other one was Muslim, Hausa. But still both of them they end up running from their for their lives. And what happened? This one she was with a sister. Shika was the, with the sister. She got separated from with the sister. And the other one had her Halima separated from her again. So they had this shared experience. Yeah? And here in this store, I mean, narrating their stories. So, so this is, um, this is the irony of things. This is what we go through. Yeah. And I like, um, there's a point, I think, uh, later on, not later on, because th- the way the story is, is written is that um, Chika thinks a little bit about what will happen in the future while she's still in the present, um, or what happened. There's the way she structures it. But in her inner thoughts at some point, um, she says something about religion and ethnicity often being politicized because the ruler is safe if they're hungry, ruled, are killing one another. What do you think about that? Well, um, you know, you know, <laughs> there is somebody who say that um, a war, what's a war? A war is 
basically it's conflict uh, between people who know each other. But those who get killed are those who do not know each other. So, 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 so basically we are having people dying on both sides, but who do not know each other. But those who start it, those mm-hmm. who start it, actually they know each other and they have the, they know the intention of each other. And they are even able to negotiate. But still, the issue is that at the lower level, at the lower level, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to set it down. It's very, very difficult. So, so that's, um, unfortunately, that's, that's what we face every day. Yeah. Yeah. And also she says something about, um, I think, because again, what you're talking about, these two women, they don't know each other. They don't even know. Initially, they don't even know they are from different religions or ethnic groups. Um, But at the same time, I think somewhere Chika talks about how the media reduces it um, to basically saying, um, I think the house are violent, I think something like that. And yet her own experience of this woman is an experience of a woman who is very gentle and kind. Uh, what do you think of yeah, that? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, that's that's exactly it. The, the way even she helped her, the way she helped her, she had this wound and she helped her. The way she was so, so simple, so... The way she treated her, she, I mean, it, 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 she presented herself different from what she was hearing from the media, what she had been reading in the newspapers. This was a different person. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. Yeah, you are right. You are right. Yeah. No, that, that struck me, but also, I guess, in many ways, um, you know, when you, you read a story of these two women, you take it away from the generalized um, way of talking about whether it's by the media or even sometimes when we communicate in, you know, in our human, own humanitarian work. So you kind of bring it back to these people who are human, who are both afraid, who are both actually suffering and have lost and are grieving. Yeah, that's correct. So what is the war? What happens? It's the demonization of the other. Mm-hmm. The demonization is the other. It's what we've been seeing uh, in every place. In every place, there is, well, there's a conflict. Um, mm-hmm. But in reality, when you look at the individuals who are suffering, who are affected, these are very nice people. Very nice people. And you wonder what's happening, what's happening, right? Mm. Yeah. The other things as I was reading the story, of course, you know, you've touched upon um, a lot of the themes, you know, Chika herself is, is from a wealthy family. So, you know, you're looking at wealth, class, religion. Um, but one thing like, I also wanted to speak to you about is... Um, the way the woman talks about the soldiers, you know, that are coming to, I think when she when she goes outside and it's safe, she's like, you know, I want to go now because the soldiers are going to come and they're going to start harassing us and the policemen are going to come. And they kind of, she's, fr- I mean, this was supposed to come and protect them, but she's kind of afraid they're just going to come and start harassing them. Correct. Um Correct. And here, this is uh, the authority. What we think about the authority, mm-hmm. right? And the authority, uh, I'm talking about the security forces, I'm talking about uh, the whole government structure. Um, is it there to really help the people or to harass the people? For, for this woman, she sells in the market. She sees uh, the, the authority and security forces are the oppressor. They are coming to harass us. So this, that's what she knows. That's what she sees. Mm-hmm. And that's the image which is out there, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and what would have happened, no, and what would have happened is that both of them live in that store at the same time. 
Chica would probably have gone to the police officer, the policemen, the military, and so forth. But this woman right. will have run away from them. Right. Because there's yeah. that perception, the different perception of the authority, of the security forces. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about as well is I, I often find in, in dealing with war situations, uh, violent situations and conflict that I think to me one of the questions that, not questions, one of the things I keep thinking about is that this ability of human beings to be really very kind and generous, but at the same time to have this capacity for violence. And we see this in the story. You have this woman who's very kind, as you've already said, very kind to Chica. She calls out her, she leads her to safety, she cleans her wound, she gives her her scarf. Um, but at the same time, you have this violence that is going on outside. And I think I read the excerpt uh, to talk about some of that violence. Can you talk a little bit about this? Mm. That's quite interesting. Um, you know, when you look at individuals, individuals, they are kind. They are easygoing. They are generous. They are, they, they, are all, they are there to help. But there is the effect of the crowd, which plays a major role here. Right. You know... There are those who react as they do just to show how strong they are, how to show it's the masculinity at play here. Right. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that man who cut off the other one with the machete, he was basically to prove to the others how powerful he is. He defends mm -hmm. the Quran, he defends the religion. Him as an individual alone, he wouldn't have done that if he was not to show for to show the others. Right. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, that's what we are we are we are dealing with. It's the effect of this group, which plays a major role. And and, and we've been seeing it even in the war situation. When you look at a single soldier, a single individual, a child soldier, or even I mean a grown-up man, uh, the individual alone is, is a very nice person. It's a very nice person. Uh, I was once held hostage uh, for a few hours, nine hours, and um, I was treated nicely, so so it wasn't that much that violence. Except the people who were held next to me were really mistreated. I could see their screaming. Uh, but I can tell you, the individuals were treating me nicely. But whenever they were coming into the room as a group. They would insult me. They would tell me all different things. But individuals were coming to see me. They were talking mm -hmm. to me nicely. They were really polite with me, kind with me. So that's mm -hmm. that's that's what we, we we've been saying. Um, the group. It's just the group. That those influences within the group that plays a major role in the conflict. Right, and. The other thing I like about this story to me that maybe what we do or the way we communicate about humanitarian crisis, that this, to me the story really captures the grief um, of these two women. Um, this is the moment when the woman herself, she's talking about her daughter. She, you know, she, her daughter ran off. She was selling ground nuts. Um, she doesn't know if she will see her again. And Chica is really wishing that she and her sister had not decided to take a taxi to the market just to see a little of the of the Asian city of Kano outside their auntie's neighborhood. Chica again wishes that this woman's daughter, Halima, had been sick or tired or lazy that morning so that she would not have sold ground nuts uh, that morning. And... Chica, you know, when she, she at some point, she's like, I'm going to get out of here. I'll get a taxi. You know, a taxi will appear by magic, by luck, by God's hand. And then she prays that Nendi, her sister, will be inside the taxi asking her where the hell she has been. And, of course, her auntie also just uh, regretting why she asked her, her, you know, her nieces to come and visit her. And to me, it's really quite a very powerful way of um, 
illustrating or sharing the grief that these women are going through uh, during this uh, this experience? Yeah, it's um, you know um, every day we we regret for making certain decisions. But again, there are, there, are, there are reasons why we make those decisions. There are reasons right. why we do that. Um, they took a taxi because they, they had the resources, they had the money. Right. Uh, what did the, the woman say? She, she takes two buses. Let's take a taxi, she takes two buses. They took a taxi. So, so there's that, that, that whole thing. Say, I, I wish we would not do that. No, I mean, that's what you wished. But you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, she wished that Halima, uh, uh, the other woman's daughter, she, she was sick or she was lazy. She didn't go to, them, go to the market. But again, she had to go out because that's the only way of earning a living. right? So yeah. she had to go. She had yeah. to go. That's it was a must. You, of course, I mean, that's, it's a fiction. Of course, it's a fiction. Uh, yeah. But yeah. uh, but but again, it's, it tells you. Uh, I wish, or I wish I had not driven this morning to work because I have an accident. No, that's. Yeah. It, it would happen. Accidents happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when was this story? What period was this story set in? What, what this year? I think it was 2000. Um, the story itself, um, if I remember correctly, it would have been in. Maybe uh, 1997, when he came to power, and and um, and and he he came to he came to Liberia at the time, and uh, that's why I got attracted to see him. I think he right. came to Liberia in 1999, no, no, 1997, 1997 rather. Uh, and um, after he uh, he was uh, playing a major role uh, in the ECOWAS, really stabilizing Liberia. Uh, and, and and that's that was the time where I really felt like a regional organization, like Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, was playing a major role to stabilize Liberia and Sierra Leone. And they did, mm -hmm. led by Nigeria and Ghana. Uh, the soldiers mm -hmm. of those two countries, the pressure major role. I remember Sani Abacha, he made a speech at the time uh, saying that Nigeria has spent about $4 billion to stabilize Liberia. And, and it was true. It was true through the ECOMOC. Uh, so, right. so they did a wonderful job. But, but again, um, Tania Bacha was a ruthless ruler. I mean, just basically feeding the resources of the country. Um, I mean, and of course, the way he came to power was another story. Um, right. So, so but, but at least he played them. He, he really helped stabilizing a neighboring nation. So, yeah. No, these are my... I think those are all the questions, and unless there's anything else you'd like to talk about, a private experience. Well, I don't really have a private experience to share. Uh, however, you know, there are so many stories to share about humanitarian action. Uh, stories, and not only stories of us, who have been there, but also stories who have gone through this, stories of individuals who have been affected. We speak from um, a different level. You know, we speak from a different level. Uh, basically, if you look at the story, if I go back to the story of Chica and this woman in the store, uh, I think the other woman would have narrated the story differently, right? Yes. The experience would have yes. been different. It would have been really nice to hear from what she thought about that, that experience. Uh, this is highly educated Chica. I mean, going through this, I'm sure she was even scared of being with this woman in this place. 
in this Kano city, northern Nigerian city of Kano. Uh, and and she said, am I going to be, she's going to really pick up a machete and mm-hmm. cut me to pieces. Uh, but I mean, she shows a different kind of person. So I think I think we, we need we need to trust people uh, we we don't know uh, we need to trust them and also we need to to be help to be ready to assist those who are in need. Yeah, that's what I'll say. No, Francois, and I'm so glad you say that. Hundred percent, I agree with you. I one of the things I'm really hoping is you know, to work out as, as the humanitarian community, how we can help uh, people tell their own stories because I think it's it's one way. Um, we all have stories. We all know what stories we want to tell, what part of ourselves that we want to tell. And so I think, I hope one day that, you know, more and more people can be helped uh, to be able to tell their own stories to the world. Mm. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ruth. Thank you for giving So, me. my last question for you is, mm. and you, I think you already answered it, but my final question is always like, um, what one action can people out there listening to you take to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis? I know you said we should all plant a tree. Uh, yes, very simple, very easy. Like I say, yeah. Let's plant a tree. That's number one to fight against global warming, right? And that's yeah. just one of the simple thing that each one of us could do. But again, let's use the, ex- the, the experience, the story of this woman, Chika and, 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 and Halima's mother. Let's let me call her Halima's mother and, and say, look, the other person out there who don't know that person. But that person is not an enemy. Not at all. He's not an enemy. And you don't know you may end up in a situation where you need each other. Trust the person. If you can assist, please do assist. And that's what I would say. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francois. And uh, that's really, really a good and very powerful note to end our conversation. Do you have any questions for me? No, not at all. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Francois today on Saha Stories and Humanitarian Action. If you've enjoyed this conversation, like, comment, share, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can also find more information about this podcast on my website, www.ruthmukwana.com. I'd like to thank Jamal Swift, my co-producer, and The Nomadic for the music. Thank you. So I will stop it.